0: Welcome to Imaginal Inspirations with me, David Lorimer. This is a podcast in which I ask my guests about experiences, people, and books that have inspired their life and work. My guest today is Professor Marilyn Monk, who is one of the most original and interdisciplinary scientists I have the pleasure of knowing. Marilyn's approach combines the objective scientist with the subjective mystic, and the aesthetic poet and artist. She is also an animal lover and paints beautiful pictures of horses. Marilyn is Emeritus Professor of Molecular Embryology at the Institute of Child Health at University College London and holds an honorary chair at the University of Melbourne. She is also a vice president of the Scientific and Medical Network. She has written over 120 peer-reviewed papers over her distinguished 60-year career and has recently developed an integrated and hierarchical approach to a science of consciousness where each level is in service to the one above. Her work on gene expression and its regulation by epigenetic modification in mammalian development and cancer was crucial to the subsequent emergence of epigenetics. And she was also a pioneer in assisted reproduction. In addition, Marilyn has qualified as a psychosynthesis counselor and Alexander Technique practitioner. And as you will learn, her encounter with Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, now known as Osho, was central to her spiritual development. So, Marilyn, warm, warm welcome to you. Um, tell us um, a little bit about a, a shaping moment um, which influenced your, your choice of work.
1: Yeah, well, there's a number of those. I mean, I suppose the initial one that made me into a scientist was thinking I was better at science at school, because I was a bit of a mathematical genius. I mean, I don't know where that came from, but possibly related to some autistic tendencies. And uh, I could get 100% in mathematics, and, and whereas I could only get something like 90% in history or English. So all those 100% in mathematics made me feel I was better at science. Well, I mean, that's not true. It's just the nature of uh, mathematics and geometry. You can get it right and it's QED at the bottom. But that's why I navigated to, to science in the first place. And then I thought I should do medicine. I should do something helpful because I had a friend at school who wanted to be a doctor because she wanted to do good in the world. And I thought, do I want to do good in the world? Well, maybe I should. So I decided to do medicine. But when I went for the interview with the student advisor, he wouldn't let me. That was 1955, I think. And he said I was too pretty. I'd be a waste of money. And I couldn't do medicine. And suggested I just did science. So that was a very deciding moment. wasn't a choice of mine. In a way, these deciding moments are not always your choice, are they? And then a huge shaping moment was meeting John Bonner talking about slime molds. And at that time, for various reasons, I was wanting to get away from bacteria and viruses and DNA and things and work with an organism that did something interesting. I, I, I left um, the DNA replication repair field, which I'd been in for 12 years, and went into slime molds to play because there was something to play with in a way. And, uh, and then a very deciding moment was when I got the sack in Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> and that was because I went to slime moulds to get away from my husband, who was involved so too much with my work, and went into slime moulds. And would you believe it, he sort of followed me in slime moulds, followed me there, so I didn't get away at all. So that when we were moving from Edinburgh to London, he was taking my field with him, and I, had, I didn't have a scientific field. So a huge deciding moment in my career was being rescued at that time by Anne McLaren.
0: Who was one of your great mentors, I think.
1: She was a marvellous mentor. She was Dame of the British Empire, very well-noted family, but she was just an amazing role model for me in life, you know. I felt very much rescued by her in all sorts of ways.
0: Did she give you any any particular advice that you remember, or was it more just the way that she was and, and went about I things? I just had
1: huge respect for her, for her presence, for her ability to listen carefully to what people said. She never complained or explained stuff away. She was hugely supportive of women scientists in particular. Uh, she was just somebody I just admired tremendously for her strength, her courage, her presence, her wisdom, everything about her.
0: We all need these kind of mentors at different stages of our lives, so that was obviously very important. And then what about um, books that have shaped your life?
1: Yes, well, I don't know how this happened, but in in my teenage years, I had this passion for all these writers like Camus and Tired de Chardin, Kierkegaard, Gide, and um, Simone de Beauvoir. I had a huge passion for those books. I don't know where it came from, but in my teens, I was reading all these books, but it must have been, well, looking back, I was looking for something more.
0: Did you discover something there, or did you then have to look elsewhere?
1: Well, as you know, I ended up in Ashram in the 70s with Rajneesh.
0: Tell us a bit about that, because
1: you you
0: characterize yourself as a scientist, a mystic, and a poet. Yes. How was he, and and how was your experience in the ashram?
1: Well, I used to, I went to ashram in 1976. I mean, in those in the 60s and early 70s, we're all sort of interested in gurus. We have the Beatles with the Maharishi and George singing spiritual songs, and there was this interest in in spiritual teachers and. I first went to ashram in 1976 and I was completely bowled over by meeting Rajneesh, now called Osho. He was called Bhagwan then in the 70s. He's now called Osho. And it was sort of like, I, it's hard to describe it. You know, everybody sort of knows what one means when you say falling in love at first sight. It was sort of like that, but even more so, I was completely overwhelmed by being in his presence with him speaking to me. And he was—he liked the fact that I was a scientist. Um, he was a professor of philosophy. And uh, he talked to me a lot about science. And it was him that, I mean, totally in keeping with the Galileo Commission, it was he that said to me, and I've got the tape still, and I often listen to it, that as a scientist, I was to have no a priori hypotheses, no preconceived ideas, and that I was to explore like a huge adventure, and that went very deep in me because I was already a bit like that. Yeah, so that encouraged something that was... That made it okay for me to be off the rails a bit as a scientist because I wasn't interested in existing dogma or consensus reality, which I saw as being built upon a set of possibly arbitrary concepts in the first place. I mean, you can build a whole structure that looks like facts But it may not be. Always as a child, I was always interested in things that didn't fit, the odd thing. Yes,
0: which I think has been very important in in your scientific career.
1: Well, absolutely. All my discoveries come from, but what about that? That's telling us something. That's what most people think is a bit annoying when you have a dogma already established, a consensus reality in a particular field that everybody agrees with. Uh, something that doesn't fit is called an artifact. You just push to one side, whereas that's exactly what I was interested in.
0: <laughs> well, those yeah. anomalies, when you, when you spot them and work with them, that's what really leads to breakthroughs. Absolutely. Can you perhaps talk a little bit about any breakthrough moments in your work and sort of aha moments? Um,
1: yeah, well, there's a lot of those. It's because I was interested in the things that didn't fit. I was always discovering things, new things that didn't fit with a dogma. So many instances in my career, I was trying to say something, get it published, that nobody else was agreeing with. You know, they would pronounce it wrong. There were established people in the field would publish papers saying I was wrong. and uh, But I'd managed to get things published by not actually taking my writing about significance and so on too far, just sort of, just the facts. I uh, see without writing what I wanted to write but look this is different so I'd managed to get things published but they'd remain unsupported and which is why I had to be such a scientific butterfly moving on to yet another area of research whereas most scientists I would say establish themselves in a particular area of research and only publish in that area you can see from my work I'm all over the place
0: Well, it's much more stimulating, and then any moments of serendipity.
1: Well, when I moved to Anne McLaren's unit, that was a hugely big problem for me because I'm a great lover of life. You know, I'll rescue worms that have gone onto asphalt, and uh, I, I love creatures and life and animals and so on. And so it was okay to work with bacteria and slime mold. I didn't mind putting them in the sink so much. But when I moved with Anne McLaren, she was working on mouse embryos. And later on, we moved to human embryos. And this of course required killing of mice to get embryos for research. And that was something that I knew I couldn't do. So it seemed to be that I wasn't going to be able to, to work with her at all in this new field. But she said to me, look, you're a molecular biologist. The reason we have to kill so many mice to get enough embryos to study is that molecular biology requires millions of cells to do research. And of course, if you're working with embryo, you've got one egg, then you've got two cells, four cells, eight cells. And people were killing a lot of mice to get enough embryos to, to look at a common molecule inside the cell. So she said, you just work on the techniques and make them a million times more sensitive. So I said, oh, well, I can do that. I'm not against using animals in research. That has to be done. I mean, you can't try out new research techniques on humans. You really have to use animals. But I've always been one to make sure that's a very limited extent that you could use animals. So the first serendipitous thing, when I was working with DNA, I was using radioactive labels of thymidine and uh, looking for mutants in DNA synthesis. So we could look at all the different functions controlling replication of DNA. And I was looking at these temperature sensitive mutants, the ones that would stop making DNA at the high temperature, but would go on making protein. And so I just could take that approach with the hot radioactive labels into single cell molecular biology. And I made a mistake right at the beginning by using NEAT radioactive label for one of the enzyme reactions I was using on an X chromosome, which was a mistake because normally you would adjust the concentration with cold label. And I made a mistake by using NEAT label and it was just the sensitivity went through the roof. And I remember showing Anne, we're looking out the window in the Galton lab there, Towards Highgate. And I remember that moment. It was just amazing. When she was looking at the counts coming from the cult counter, this was single cell molecular biology, suddenly.
0: Happened Amazing. I can imagine that's very memorable. And and what about experiences in relation to your understanding of consciousness?
1: As a child, just outside of Melbourne in the bush there, I used to go out to my pony at night, sneak out. <laughs> so nobody knew I was gone. I go to the pony and the pony and lie down with the pony and Gaze up at the Milky Way.
0: It would have been very clear.
1: Beautiful and miraculous and amazing. And and I suppose in terms of consciousness, those early childhood memories of gazing at the Milky Way in the night sky with my pony, with just just a sense of being out there, really. I've always had this sense of belonging to the whole, to everything.
0: Wonderful. Uh, and, and horses have meant a lot to you, haven't they? In, in Absolutely.
1: Your... As a child, I, I, I have to admit I didn't like people much. You know, <laughs> I liked animals much more.
0: Yeah. yeah I, Madame de Stael, the eighteenth, seventeenth century writer, she said, "The more I know of men, the more I prefer dogs." Yes. So, um,
1: I actually, yeah. I just think I was born loving horses. I don't know, and you know, I've always had horses until now. And until recently, I was still working at riding for the disabled, and actually still getting on a horse at riding for the disabled, riding at Hyde Park.
0: You also, you're an artist as well, aren't you? And but you've done a lot of uh, paintings and drawings of horses. Is this something that
1: takes you into a different state, a different part of yourself? I know when I'm painting, time stops. That's for sure. That's my one activity where I'm just lost in the process of. And if you love, if there's love in what you're portraying, it comes out in a painting. In a moment, like you look two, three, four hours later and you think, where did that come from? And if there's love, like like doing portraits of my sons or painting horses or even a copy of a, a painting I did of Marilyn Monroe, I mean, everybody was amazed what came out what appeared I mean I don't know it's happening it's not I'm not doing it it's sort of coming from somewhere else
0: yes coming through you Marilyn how, how does your understanding of consciousness affect the way you live your life
1: well the love of beauty of existence the love of the beauty of existence so I feel that I tap into my as was said by Rupert Spira isn't it aware of being aware Yes. I'm yeah. aware of being aware. I walk every day. I've walked every day for the whole 45 years I've lived here in Highgate, in Highgate Woods. At that time, I'm practicing aware of being aware. I know all the trees. I see the sunlight dappled through the leaves. I hear the bird song, I pick up straight worms that have got on the path. And, you know, I'm sort of one with nature there in Highgate Woods. With that, there's a sense of belonging in whereas i suppose in my consciousness model as i say you know if i link up everything in my inverted ancestry model i have my position in the interconnected hierarchy and i can retreat to my position and have an ego and an existence and free will and a sense of my own consciousness in terms of my senses plus my mind but since i'm just a point on the hierarchy i'm also belong to the whole So it's like I was saying the other day, when I think Peter was talking about non-duality and state of enlightenment, and I was saying, well, for me, I'm more like Jesus going from the marketplace to the mountain. I know in the marketplace I can behave horribly to get what I want, and I've got to survive as my physical being and my ego, which is what my mind's about. And when I, I feel that I'm fusing with the whole, where it's not free will, but predestination, and it's not my consciousness, but consciousness has me, then that's the mountain. But I think that others have a much more fixed idea of non-duality or enlightened being as a permanent state of being.
0: You feel that sort of non-dual sense, I I can resonate with that, when you're in nature.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yes. Yeah. Oddly enough, this morning I've just been reading Hermann Hesse on trees. It's a wonderful piece written as a poet, but also about how trees have certain parallels with human life, but 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 much longer, of course.
1: Yeah, I remember that song. I talk to the trees, but they don't listen to me.
0: <laughs> ah, okay. well, maybe they do. I mean, yeah, yeah. I
1: I certainly feel trees are beings. Walking amongst trees and in the woods, I recognise a lot of them. I have my favourite tree. I feel they're beings, that they're observing me and watching me. I
0: had favourite trees when I lived in Scotland. There's one particular beech tree that was one of my favourites. And, and you're right, there's a presence. The, the tree has a presence. Absolutely. And, and when it's cut down, there's a huge hole. Oh Briggs, I feel I, I, I feel
1: like, you know, when they're chopping trees down in Highgate where there's lots of conservation on the trees, I feel it feels like murder to me.
0: Yes. Is there a proverb or quotation that you, you live by or that one of your, what's your what are your favorite quotations?
1: I was thinking above my desk at work, Institute of Child Health, I had failures on the way to success. <laughs> ah,
0: very
1: good. And the other thing I had, which I mean, it is a quite strong comment on my life pick yourself up, dust yourself down, and start all over again.
0: Yes, pick very yourself. good. Yes, well, okay. there are, life is a, there are a lot of series of endings and beginnings in life. And then finally, Marilyn, w- would you have any advice from where you are now to your younger
1: self? It'll be all right. It'll be all right. Existence gave birth to you. Existence is looking after you. One of the interesting things to do is to actually make a list of what you think of your traumas in life, you know. Mm -hmm. And I must say it's a bit of a trauma being born female, as I'm concerned as a scientist. If you make a list of traumas in your life, and you may not have solved them yourself, like taken an action to leave something or do something different or life-saving, you will see that... God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, and Mm -hmm. you'll see that the outcome from that challenge or trauma has been a good outcome, even if you didn't do it. It's sort of like existence has looked after you, not the way that you chose, but it's got you out of that situation. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the fact that I'm here today at this age, with all my sort of physical problems, I mean, I just feel existence is looking after me. And if you think of it since the time life began four billion years ago, existence has looked after our ancestors and our forefathers. Throughout a period where extinction equals creation, I'm here. So that my ancestors have all been looked after by existence, and so have I been looked after, which I think is a sort of inherent basis of faith and trust.
0: Good well Marilyn that's a wonderful message to share um, with our listeners and and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and inspiration.
1: Thank you for having me.